Welcome to Canuck Central on Sportsnet 650. It is Satyar Shah with my friend Israel Fear filling in for Dan Oricio, who is away today. He's fine, just away today, taking a day. We'll be back again tomorrow. But I got my boy Izzy with me today. What's happening, man? It's good to be here, Sat. I'm ready to go. Let's oh, do this. I'm hyped. I'm hyped. I'm hyped. Uh, we don't need to go over our long history working together back in the day. But uh, every time I work with Izzy, I think back to when we first kind of met each other. What? How, how long ago was it now? Like almost 10 years ago now? Jeez, Nine yeah. years ago? Be, it'd be up there. Yeah. So I was covering yeah. the Blue Jays. Yeah. Now, now we're both here in Vancouver talking getting, Canucks. Getting you on to talk Blue Jays with bro Jake and Dave Pratt. That's you know? right. How times have changed from back in the day. All right. But, uh, you know, Izzy, we have a lot to get into. Get your thoughts into our Dunbar Lumber Text Inbox, 650-650. We have a big show coming up today. Frank Valley is going to join us at 4.30 Daily Faceoff with the latest around the National Hockey League and also with what your Vancouver Canucks might be up to trade-wise leading up to the NHL trade deadline. Your boy, Harmon Dial, is joining us at 5 from The Athletic. And then our guy, Irf Gafar, is also going to drop by at 6 to get into all things Vancouver Canucks here on Canuck Central. And, you know, I know a lot of the conversation today has been around the immaturity of this group. And yeah. We talked about that quite a bit on the postgame show. And even, you know, beyond that, it kind of always comes down to your top players. And if you're looking long-term for this franchise, you have one center locked up and under control for a long time, and that is Elias Patterson. The other players, well, they don't exactly have a ton of term here. Bo Horvat has a year left. JT Miller has a year left. The rest were kind of wondering what's going to happen. But if you're building things out long-term here with Pedersen and Bo, let's just assume Bo was the guy that does stay long-term, who are the guys you play with these guys? Because recently, especially when I look at a game last night, and we talk about the maturity stuff and, you know, you know, big picture and everything too, but in the moment, as we speak, Pedersen found himself playing with Hoaglander and Chase on, and Bo Horvat has had a hard time creating chemistry with Brock Besser the past few games. Yep. And you're kind of wondering, what is the right fit for these guys long-term? Starting with Elias Pettersson, it has kind of worked with Hoagland, would put Coles in a Hoaglander at times. Mm-hmm. Chase on's not finishing his chances. Hoaglander doesn't have the trust of the head coach. Is it right for him to keep playing with those guys? Gosh, at this point, it, 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 feels, like, it feels like that they kind of have to, mm-hmm. which says a lot about where the team's at. It's, it's not quite good enough overall and I think if we get into a deeper part of the discussion it's not quite good enough in terms of that chemistry and who's going to play uh, with those guys right like we often have said and this goes back to the previous management team Mm -hmm. that their biggest priority was the blue line and and fixing the blue line and getting a little bit more depth there and 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 really elevating the play of, of the second and third pair but not too far below is finding the right fits and optimizing, first of all, Elias Pettersson and then Bo Horvat, who the commitment's been made to. He's the captain. Yes, yeah. he, he's going to need a new contract, but all indications are this is a guy that they want to keep around and they feel like he's got you know a skill set to thrive in the NHL. Mm-hmm. And he's had some really strong periods of play. You look at the playoffs and that gets people really excited what he did in the playoffs. But there have been some valleys, and there's been outside of Tanner Pearson, who's been his line mate basically Mm -hmm. since the moment he got to Vancouver, and we've seen those guys play together a lot. 
there hasn't been that dynamic duo. And Brock Besser, you would think, off the top of your head, those guys should be able to play together. Since Besser's rookie season, when they've played together, the results haven't really been there. Yeah. But to me, look, the, the big wild card in this conversation is Connor Garland. So there's a there's a commitment to him uh, long-term, contract-wise. Mm-hmm. And he's an interesting player because of the things that we know he can do. And it seems like with both of those guys, whether it's Horvat or Pedersen, he's had time with both of them. There have been, I think, some sparks, but nothing too consistent where he's absolutely solidified himself in that spot, which is why mm-hmm. Hoaglander comes up, Pod Colson still comes up. A guy like Chason, and, and look, I, I know Chason's not the most popular Canucks player in the world. He's been in the NHL for a long time. Generally, he, what he the, the reason he's in the league is that he can score. Yes. And we've seen it on the power play, even though some of those goals are not highlight real goals, but he's still able to put the puck in the net. That's why he's getting the opportunity there, because we, we know that this is, te- this is a team. We've seen it this season. We've seen it not a ton last season because they didn't win a lot. But we saw it the year before that. When they score goals, they've got a chance to win games. And that is, I think, what Bruce Boudreaux is is trying to engineer first and foremost, which then kind of goes against the idea of their slow starts and and how poor they've looked. It's it's hard to balance those two things, I think, when you're a team that's got flaws. And I think part of that, you're right. A big part of it is this team is flawed. You only have so many options. you got to do what you got to do to try to get past, especially this little short-term period here. And... You know, as dissatisfying as the game last night was, they had won five out of six games before that. So that one really stings, especially with an opponent like the New Jersey Devils. But in a game where there was opportunity for offense, I kept thinking to myself, man, Pedersen's been going. Why is there reluctance to go away from or to go away from Garland, say, with Miller? You brought Garland up. To me, that's the guy that this club and two coaching staffs have not yet utilized to explore all, all possibilities with Elias Pettersson. I said a while back that right now, the only guy I can look at and say long-term, I can see being a fit with Pettersson on this lo- on this roster is Vasily Putkolsky. Mm-hmm. But Garland, he just hasn't had enough of a chance. But Putkolsky and Garland and Pettersson played together for a spell. They looked dynamic. I liked it. It was electric, right? I liked it, but as soon as they started playing together, even Bruce Boudreaux was saying, yeah, this isn't a long-term thing, and it, it just gave everybody a reason to to look at that and, and not commit to it. And, and that's this is my question, which also kind of builds into Connor Garland, but that's the one guy I look at this roster and say, hey, we know Besser and Pedersen can work at times, but hasn't worked at times. Miller, who knows he's going to be here long-term or not, so you can't bank on that long-term being a fit, and they haven't even played together this year. You know, yeah. that, There's clearly something there with them not getting on the same line. Mm-hmm. But why not explore Garland more? Part of the reason, and I've been wondering about this, is Garland doesn't get used as a premier winger. Not under at all. Boudreaux. It wasn't yeah. used that way under um, Travis Green either. He plays about 14, 15 minutes a game. Doesn't get first power play time. Doesn't play first line minutes. So is this a case of the coach just not feeling like he's going to be a potential frontline player for us playing with Elias Patterson? which at the same time I can't square with the notion of Chason playing there if that's the case, right? He's not a long-term fixture here. He's a short-term guy. But I, I just kind of wonder about why the Patterson and Garland experiment isn't being explored more, especially because Garland has term on his contract. 
And who knows what happens trade-wise in this offseason. But if I'm, if I'm trying to really explore everything on this roster and figure out what works and what fits here long-term, that's the only guy I can sit here and say, let's try Pedersen out with Garland a bit more before we know what to do with Garland long-term. To start the season when Garland was one of the Canucks' best players in what was a, a pretty uneven start to the year, and I'm talking the, the, the real beginning of the season, that opening road trip to start the year. He wasn't getting a ton of minutes, and everyone was really mm-hmm. impressed by what he brought to the table. And the explanation at the time was, well, we're sort of saving him because he's kind of our Mr. Fix-It right now, and we yeah. can put on different lines, and he can fill different roles, and we like that. And at the time, you could buy that explanation. Okay, fair enough. And we, You see this in other sports, right? You see this like in soccer with a guy who's come, he's a great sub. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, you know, we just want to keep him as a sub. And then you, you can go to the coach and go, well, he's one of your three best forwards he should be playing you don't necessarily just want to pigeonhole a guy into his role right we saw that a little bit with hoaglander this year too where he had that stretch where you know we don't want to commit to him one way or the other we like that he has some versatility we can play him with different guys hoaglander's play since then has completely declined Mm -hmm. and i feel like with garland that explanation doesn't hold water anymore it's it's more so there just hasn't been that commitment made to playing him in those spots and it makes the evaluation of him as a player really fascinating because he's he's become one of these guys where you look at the the per 60 rates and the underlying numbers and they're good and there's always something with those players it reminds me a little bit of Sven Berchi mm-hmm. Sven Berchi was a player who brought a lot of nice intangible things he, you know he could make some plays he was he was a solid player on a second power play unit and his underlying numbers or his per 60 numbers were really good and Stats heads would have you, hey, he's a he's a top six forward. And you would talk to people in the NHL, and they would say, you know what? He's good in his role. He's good at playing 13, 14 minutes a night mm-hmm. and having a role on the power play. And, you know, the power play is better now, so Garland probably, a Garland-type player probably would have had a power play role when Berchi did. It's a little tougher to come by now because there's guys like Patterson, Miller, and Besser around. But all that said, I feel like he comes across that same sort of scrutiny. Yeah, you know what? He's good, and his numbers look good in this 14, 15-minute-a-night range. But that that's what he is, and, and we're, we don't think he's more than that. And that's the biggest hurdle that I see for Connor Garland is— and I'm going to be careful how I frame this because I don't mean this in, in, the, in the negative sense, but the bias of his size. Because— when you look back at teams that Rutherford has built out and the teams that he had even in, in Pittsburgh, they didn't have a lot of small forwards that were like Connor Garland. And if they were smaller, they had a lot of pace. Like Super I, fast. I look at Ray Whitney, for instance, who was 5'10", maybe even shorter than 5'10", really, but he had a lot of pace to his game, yeah. right? A high-end player, a veteran, and had a lot of experience. And, you know, he was a guy that, of course, had a pretty big role uh, with that team. But... Not very many of those guys. So from Rutherford's perspective, when you hear Connor Garland's name in the trade rumors, how much of that is the team kind of gauging and seeing how they view it? And even Bruce Boudreaux, when you look at the teams he's coached, he didn't really play a lot of small guys big minutes in skill roles. And every time Boudreaux's talked about Garland, he said very good things about him, but he's also kind of mentioned, well, he's a little guy. If he was 6'2", he'd be a heck of a hockey player. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which which I just kind of wonder if that internally there's a limit with what they view him as. And it's like, hey, he's really good at what he does. We don't quite feel like he's that next level really, really good player we should be playing or giving him a, a, a front-line role to potentially, which poses questions long-term about, okay, does that make sense at 4.9? Because I think right. Garland, Garland can do things. I'm a big fan of his. I'm, I'm sitting here saying, play him more. Yep. Give him the ice time. 
But if you're not going to utilize him that way, then how does he fit in? So that's one thing I want to see them explore, especially before the deadline here. Let's get Pedersen and Garland together and see if there's something there that's greater than what we've seen. It's worth looking into because that's a number that's not impossible to to fit into the middle six or let's call it the third line. That's not ideal. You don't want to sign a guy to near five million and say, you know what, his upside yeah. is that he's going to be on a third line, especially for a team at this point in in their build. Right? Like when JT Miller signed his contract with Tampa. And it was like, oh, okay, he's going to be kind of one of those middle six guys, and he gets to go to Vancouver and gets a much bigger opportunity and is produced. And JT Miller's a different player. He's closer to that power forward mm-hmm. build. Uh, he's proven to be pretty dynamic on the power play. He's got the center wing versatility. There are some more things you can do with him. But it, it's a problem the Canucks have run into a bunch of times in the past. And it's not with this management group, but the idea of, mm-hmm. okay, we're going to sign Tyler Myers. He's a good player. He brings some things to this group that they don't have. Get him here. Oh, well, he's not really going to be a first pair guy for us. Uh, Well, you know, we need some things to go our way, and we need the right fit on the second pair. So what ends up happening? He ends up playing a bunch of one season with Oscar Fandenberg. And that pairing had some success, right? They were okay. And this year it's worked a little bit with OEL, and they've been pretty solid defensively. But there's always something. And it does seem like Garland is in that mix where – there's something mm-hmm. holding him back, which for this team, even building out going forward, is not the end of the world. Because you could say, okay, let's say Hoaglander and Horvat and Pud Colson and Pedersen. And then that, you know, is very dependent on what happens with Miller mm-hmm. and what happens with Besser. But you feel you, I, I think you'd feel okay about those duos, and then you'd certainly you'd certainly look at that window opening up a little bit further down the road than maybe people are looking at right now with you know they need to make some moves today mm-hmm. they need to stock up and put themselves in position to win next year Pud Colson and Hoaglander I don't think are at that point yet for as well as they've shown at times during their career and so that's a long-term thing you're right I mean Pud Colson and Pedersen that makes sense and and I like the progression Pud Colson has shown and it's going to take some time and even Hoaglander you're, you know I like that you brought up Hoaglander with Horvat because when I'm looking at a long-term, if Bo's going to be here long-term, that's the guy. That's the fit, right? And even though Hoaglander's had a bit of a tough year so far and the coach has harped on him and he might even get another healthy scratch coming up and we'll see what his status is ultimately. But he's shown last year, especially when he played with Pearson and Horvat, that they have something there. So Horvat and him can work. And it brings us to Bo and the types of players he needs to play with because We've now seen him play with Besser for a few games, and it's not going anywhere. We saw him play with Pedersen when Pedersen on the wing for a few games. It didn't go anywhere. There's a reason why Travis kept defaulting to Pearson playing with Bo, and eventually I think we'll start seeing that again, and you saw a lot of that even with Boudreaux. As much as that frustrated fans, I think there was a reason, yeah. Because what Pearson does is allow Bo to do the things he does well. And what does Bo do well? He carries the puck. Mm -hmm. He drives to the net, right? He's a good shooter. He's a decent goal scorer. Those are the things he does. He's not a playmaker. And he's a guy that needs the puck on a stick, but he's not a playmaker. So if you're playing with guys that need the puck on their stick to make plays— you're not going to have success with him, right? So if Besser is going to wait around to get the puck playing with Bo, that doesn't let Besser kind of be as involved as he needs to be. And same thing with Pedersen. Pedersen likes to have the stick and create and, and be the center of the action. If he's just a winger waiting for Bo to do his thing before he gets the puck, that doesn't work out either. But a guy like Pearson, who's great at 
sealing the wall, winning those battles, getting the puck and cycling it and working the cycle with Bo, for instance. And a guy like Hoaglander that's also good at getting in on the forecheck, digging pucks out and getting into space, you essentially need high-end grinders with Bo that have a little bit of skill, that get the puck over to him. One of the best wingers he had was Antoine Roussel. <laughs> and they had a great year together, Roussel's first year. Because what would Roussel do? He'd skate his ass off, yep. win puck battles, or beat a guy, and then just feather a backhand pass over Love to Bo Horvath. making those, those sneaky, sneaky passes in the offensive zone. <laughs> he really did. That's what it was. And Bo loved it. <laughs> exactly. That played into Bo's hands. So when we're trying to look at Garland or Besser or even Pedersen or Miller, those guys aren't a fit with Horvath. And for all this talk about him needing better wingers, I don't disagree that sometimes players need bigger, better wingers, of course. But this notion that he'd be far better playing with elite guys, I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think he fits with those types of guys. It's more about understanding what is Bo and what types of players work with Bo. And to me, the Hoaglander Pearson types are the players you play with Bo, which means he's a second-line guy, which we knew already. But I don't think it works playing in with higher-end guys that need the puck on their stick a bit more that need to be more creative with how they play. Totally. And I think that that's... And this is all on-ice stuff with Horvath. We're, we're analyzing his game. This is not uh, dressing room stuff, captaincy stuff. This is what kind of player is he? And who does he, who do you play him with long-term? Yeah. Because, I mean, look, we've we seen him play with Miller, and they, they've been able to put periods together. But it's not a long-term fit because of the skill set. Mm-hmm. They both like to do the same thing. And that's not that's not going to work. And you need to find players that fit with each other. It's it's a you know the great mystery. And you hear talk. I feel like maybe twenty years ago we spent a lot more time talking about lines. Mm-hmm. It was these three guys together, and they have an identity. And this is the checking line, and this is what they're going to do. And this these are the lines they're going to match up with. Coaches now, and I think media and fans. We're mostly talking about duos. Who are the two guys that are going to play together? And then the third is a rotating piece. Right. And we saw that earlier this year with this group, that on the right side they might be able to mm-hmm. rotate some players, but the left and the center were going to be the duos. And I, I think I think a lot of coaches like that. They'd like to keep the rotation to right. one side, and for the Canucks that's just the way that it happened to work. But with Pedersen and Horvat, they shouldn't, necessarily be limiting themselves to what they have and what makes sense for the rest of the roster also known as forgetting about the other two lines like these you need to optimize these guys we know that when Pedersen's playing at a really high level we saw it in 2019-20 with Miller and Besser they were one of the five ten mm-hmm. best lines in the league and we have seen when Horvat has played well what it takes to get him there there needs to be I think a little bit more, and this is you know the next three weeks before the deadline and the rest of this season, whether or not they make a push for the playoffs, a commitment to playing or finding those fits mm-hmm. with those two guys. Patterson, you know, I think they'll have him as long as he wants to be here, and so that's worth it. And Horvat, yes, he does need that contract, but you, if you're going to give him that contract, you're going to want to know that you have something here that is going to make him successful. And mm-hmm. then if he's successful as a second-line center, odds are the team is going to be more successful as well. Yeah, and, but I do think there could be a question coming in here 
about ultimately as you try to become a cup contender, a line like his, is it better to have that be your second line or your third line? And that also comes back to the question of how much you're willing to pay these guys and everything like that, right? But how do you get more out of it? But one of the things that he's done well, Bo, this year is win his matchups this year. So if you can figure out those line mates, and even if it's say, you know, Bo peaks out at 55 points, 25 goals or whatever it Mm is, and his wingers are Pearson types that get 20 goals, 15 goals, 40 points or whatever, that's not high-end production. But if you win your matchup and provide that, then you feel like, okay, that's something solid, right? So that's going to have to be the identity, I think, of any Bo Horvat line in the future. It's not going to be a high-end, big-time point-producing line, but can they give you above-average production and win their matchups? And how do you build a line to be that? The goal rate stuff for the best teams in the league, they generally have a first line that's dominant. You're talking 55 to 60% goal rate. Tampa is kind of a cheat code because they'll have second and third lines that are winning 55% of their matchups. But on a lot of the other contending teams, they've got that second line Mm -hmm. that is very much contingent on their matchup side. They're taking on... Uh, the the best lines for the other teams, and if they are breaking even, at if they're a fifty percent line, you're still in a good place. And that's always been the conversation about Horvat because of the matchups that he's taken on. And then when when his production dips and when the scoring goes down and the goal rate goes down, there's a lot of consternation about what kind of player is he? Mm-hmm. Are these matchups too difficult? What do the Canucks need? We saw it for years. We there's a reason that the Previous management group signed Jay Beagle. They're like, we need a guy to take on these matchups. That didn't work because, of course, that line got caved in way worse than whatever Horvat was doing and was not producing anything offensively. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a really tough spot. And when you're evaluating Horvat, you said this to me before the show. You're probably looking at him being like, you know, the benchmark for a second line center. But that doesn't mean that he's an elite second line center. And we are having this conversation came up uh, with the show I did with Bick Nazar the other day. Uh, who's better, JT Miller or Ryan Kessler? And we entertained it slightly before landing on Kessler. And the text box lit up with, you guys forget how good Ryan Kessler is. Which yeah. we, we made the point. Like, Ryan Kessler in his prime was well, the one, peak yeah. Yeah. of what you would want from a second line center. Mm-hmm. With the defensive play, with 40 goals, with being just you know impactful on every shift. Horvat's not there. Doesn't mean that he's not a good player, but needs, I think, a little bit more. And not that Kessler was the easiest player to play with. If you if you talk to guys yeah. that played with him, well, he was more of a helicopter guy. Yeah, right. Like uh, on ice, there were things that had to go his yeah. way for him to perform. Horvat's not quite in that conversation, but it's a bit finicky, and they haven't been able to find the fit that's anything more than Tanner Pearson. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's more about understanding really what type of players you need and what the best fits are. Because this team clearly has talent up front. So why are they still underachieving? Why is it still labored? The accountability stuff, I think, is definitely there. We talked about the immaturity. But it's easy to just point out one thing, and especially something that's unquantifiable, like accountability and those types of things, right? It's easy to talk about, and it's there, and it is tangibly felt is hard to quantify when you try to describe it and put a number next to it. But one thing that I do believe is very clear is the mix isn't right. So this is kind of what I'm coming, coming, you know, in conclusion with this entire first segment in conversation is which of these pieces fit together well and how much of, yes, the immaturity is a thing. And yes, this team has flaws. They need to get better. But how much of their lack of hitting their ceiling and their true potential as individuals is because they don't have the right mix for a lot of these guys. 
And that's what you have to figure out. And those are the tweaks that have to be made here long term. And also figuring out in concert with that, the accountability, the dressing room stuff, the culture stuff. If that gets tweaked, do the on-ice fits work out better? You know, are are Mm -hmm. there... Is there more room for chemistry? Is there more openness to to who is going to be on the line with with a player like Pedersen or a player like Horvat? Those things are linked, and they are tough to to pull apart and figure out. I would say with the Canucks, the biggest part is just a lack of depth, a lack of talent, and uh, not having skill sets that necessarily fit together. It's hard to build those teams, right? Like it, mm-hmm. it, you're trying, to, you're not drafting players at the top end of the draft necessarily to play with each other. At that point, you're drafting best player available yeah. or you're, you're looking for value and then you're figuring it out. We saw this with the Philadelphia 76ers in basketball, yeah. right? They drafted a bunch of really good players. Ben Simmons can't shoot, but he's an all-star because he's a great playmaker and they've got Joel Embiid. He's a big man. It didn't work. It didn't work because the, the pieces didn't fit together. Precisely. And that's the toughest thing for a management group to figure out. It, and that's why the conversation about Brock Besser comes up. Mm-hmm. We can look at it and say, you know what? As a ceiling, he could be a 65-point guy and he could score 30 to 35 goals. And you feel pretty good about his two-way play. And he can play on a first line. He can play on a second line. Well, can he play on a first line with Bo Hor- or with Petey? Can he play on a second line with Bo Horvat? We think he probably could play with Petey, but it, it's not like they're attached at the hip at this point. Right. And does it fit with what, what they want to be as a team? And those are the things to figure out because, like we've been discussing here, it's been hard kind of finding that chemistry for some of the top six guys. All right. Keep getting your thoughts into our Dunbar Lumber text inbox. We'll get to more of those responses coming up in a bit here. Uh, it is... Canuck Central presented by local, your local Grip Auto entire location. Uh, friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. It is sat with Izzy in for Dan Riccio. On the other side, Frank Valley is going to join us. We'll get the latest on what may happen with your Vancouver Canucks on Canuck Central on the home of your Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Sportsnet 650's Canuck Central is presented by your local Grip Auto and Tire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Satyar Shah with Israel Fair. We are going to be joined by Frank Valley from Daily Faceoff coming up in a couple of minutes. We'll break down the latest around the National Hockey League and rumors, trades, what might be coming, including your Vancouver Canucks, who find themselves in a playoff race, took a bit of a bump though the other night here losing in New Jersey against the Devils when they were on a bit of a run winning five out of six games but you do kind of wonder how much does this so-called being in the playoff race matter to this organization as they start (laughs) planning for the trade deadline is he it's uh it's the big question I think for a lot of fans right and uh there's there's a good reason to ask it uh because there's um you know that history of the management and more specifically ownership liking to make the playoffs and can you blame them absolutely not like there's a huge financial incentive to get there um there's also some of the factors that come with being a play like you make the playoffs 
players are happier. This is what these guys play for. They don't like playing out the string. Those are factors, especially for, as we talk about, you know, you talk about the the culture and the, the possible immaturity of the this group or players with this team right now. You don't really get those problems with playoff teams. And you can quibble with whether or not making the playoffs is the best thing from an asset perspective versus the draft mm-hmm. or committing to certain players and all of that kind of thing. But these, like... Having the players having something to play for in a playoff chase is important. There are benefits in other ways. As long as they play like they believe they're in a race, not like they the other night against the New Jersey Devils. Yeah. They're not playing like you're in the race. All right, definitely. Uh, let's welcome in Frank Cervalli into the conversation, courtesy of Daily Faceoff, our regular insider here on Canuck Central. Frank, always a pleasure getting you on the show, man. Uh, how was your weekend? How you feeling? Sat, is he? I am good. Uh... 20 days until the deadline, I'll be a lot better then. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. And, you know, we were just sitting here talking about the Canucks who kind of find themselves getting a bit closer in the playoff race, but tough blow against the Devils last night. But, you know, for a lot of teams, they're trying to figure out whether they're sellers or not. And, you know, the Canucks kind of find themselves in that spot, even though we know they're open for business for the right deals and everything. Mm-hmm. But how critical is this next week or two here for teams kind of on that buyer-seller bubble? Honestly, I I think really for almost every team involved in the mix this year, deep down they really have a sense of what their team is or isn't. I mean, even for the Canucks, like we know now that they're open for business. We know now that the Anaheim Ducks sort of see the writing on the wall with their new GM and Pat Verbeek. I mean, points-wise, they're kind of right there. Points percentage, the gap is growing between the Ducks and the Oilers and the Golden Knights who have now dropped a bit. And there's just a lot of ground for the Canucks to make up. And they've made it interesting, like far more interesting than I think any of us thought it would be back in November that, you know, this was a team heading towards a 400, 425 points percentage season, a 76 to 82 point year. And you're like, man, it's going to be miserable in the lower mainland. And I think now there's been intrigue, but in an odd way, it's kind of like the worst spot you can be in if you're an NHL team. Like being in the middle, no man's land, is like it, it doesn't help anyone. You aren't close enough really to the playoffs to, to be salivating and, 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 you know, sort of life or death over every point. And you're far enough away from the lottery that, you know, you're not really putting your team in the best position to succeed. So, um, you know, it's an interesting spot to be in. And unfortunately, the Canucks have been there kind of far too often in the last handful of years. Those those reasons, Frank, are why there's a lot of people in the fan base that are impatient right now. They want the Canucks to make a move, even if it's one of those big names that we've heard talked about. But it, it does seem like the market is it's not slow moving necessarily. There seems to be a lot of chatter. But is there a particular name out there that you think certain teams are waiting on? Is is there something that, that could happen ahead of March 21st to, to set the market a little bit and, and get some action going? Not really. It doesn't feel like this is one of those, you know, there's a whole bunch of rentals and, and everyone's just kind of nervously waiting and doesn't want to be the first team to set the price. Um, 
the Toffoli trade was different because he had term and, you know, maybe it helps a little bit give people an indication of what the market might look like, but by and large, like there's not a ladder that's being climbed or, or anything like that in terms of even something that you could see open the floodgates on the market. Like it doesn't, I don't get that sense at all. And, you know, I think everyone's just kind of, I don't think they're even waiting. I think there's been lots of conversation, but I think there's been really high prices that have been set. And it's not just for the players with term, like, you know, how long have we been talking about Jacob Chicker? And it's been since December, early December, Mm -hmm. they set a really high price for assets and it's, you know, if it was met, he wouldn't be in Arizona anymore. Mm-hmm. The Montreal Canadiens with Ben Sherratt, they want the David Savard deal. They're not getting it, or at least they haven't gotten it to this point. And I think they have been like a duck underwater, paddling like crazy, trying to make sure that they get something for him. And and I you know I say that maybe a little bit in jest, like they're gonna get something for Ben Sherratt but it's not going to be what the David Savard ask was. Mm -hmm. And so I think everyone is kind of um, readjusting a little bit. And I think in an odd way, this could end up being a buyer's market and not a seller's market. Well, where does that kind of put a team like the Canucks in, especially with a guy like Miller that that we've been talked about? Because clearly the Canucks haven't liked any offers they've received because they haven't traded the player. So what's more likely, a team meets that high price or the Canucks lower their demand for JT? I don't think JT, like, I'd I'd be surprised if JT Miller's traded. Like, Mm -hmm. he's continued to slide down my trade targets board based on the intel I'm getting. I like I truly believe that while they're open to the idea or the possibility of it that they just I don't know that they can envision something like that coming across their table to the point where I would make them do it. Could it happen? I suppose, but I think it's it's certainly more unlikely than likely at this point. Um you know, I I'd hazard to put a percentage on it. But the scales are tipped pretty considerably, I think, in terms of moving JT Miller. I don't. I think that they're pretty intent at the moment on trying to make other things happen first. Canucks fans are in this period where they're trying to get to know this new management group and uh, figure out what what the plan is going to be moving forward. Now, obviously, Jim Rutherford has a long history in the NHL and uh, relationships in across the league with, with all of the, the decision makers there. But mm-hmm. do you get a sense from other teams uh, what what they think the Canucks are, are trying to do or, or how this management group is trying to position itself, uh, at least ahead of this deadline, but also perhaps heading into the offseason? Well, just in, in terms of full transparency, that's really where some of the intel has come from other teams with regards to someone like JT Miller. Like, mm-hmm. I've reported previously and, you know, it's been kind of painfully obvious when you look at the situation, the New York Rangers, like JT Miller is basically at number one on their board and there's a huge gap between number two and whoever number three would be. That's their guy. And they're, they're now beginning, not beginning. They've sort of, I don't even want to say moved on, I don't think they know what they're going to do because they have a sense that it's not going to be JT Miller, that he's not going to move. So that's sort of where the conversation starts. 
that's where the indi- the indication is gleaned. Um, you know, when it comes to the rest of the group, like there's a reason why Brock Besser's name has popped up and has sort of climbed further up the list. Like when you look at where the Canucks are going, how they're going to create salary cap space, how they um, want to slot their salary cap board moving forward, there's a lot of reasons why Brock Besser climbs to the top of the list in terms of someone making sense to move. The key is going to be getting value back in return. And if it is a buyer's market, how different does that play into it versus a typical deadline? Does it make more sense to wait until the off season? Um, Those are all pretty key considerations. Like that's, the big thing for the Canucks is they don't need salary cap space now necessarily. It'd be nice to reshuffle the deck so that mm-hmm. things like, you know, you're not up against the cap and things like the Yaroslav Halak bonus don't end up counting as an overage for next season, but they, they don't have to do anything right now. They're trying to create the flexibility for the summer, which is another moment that they could do it. Well, and that's essentially what we've been talking about as well here, Frank, that, you know, outside of Tyler Mott, there's no player they have to make a real decision on right now during the season. And a lot of these deals could be available to you this offseason as well. And the question, though, is outside of Besser, is there a name associated with the Canucks that's kind of out there that you could see being on the move by the deadline? I think, well, Mott is, is an easy one for the reasons you mentioned. Um what does that next contract look like? What does the AAV start with? Um, I think another kind of easy one that I do believe teams have poked around on and, and he's been mentioned a couple of times is Luke Shen, um, a guy that has term at a really cheap uh, cap hit that has played, you know, certainly serviceably well for, um, you know, for what he brings to the table. And, you know, I, I think when you look at that moving forward, like the rest of it, it's like, you got to come and make it interesting for us to do something. So when you hear Patrick Alvin and you hear Jim Rutherford talk about not being in a rush, like that's not GM or, or president of hockey ops. That's not Poho speak mm-hmm. for, you know, we're just trying to slow play this and see if we can milk the best offers of what's out there. I like, I truly believe that's how they're approaching this deadline in terms of you got to come and make it worth our while for us to move the guys that we're potentially considering moving. Which team uh, other than Vancouver do you look at, Frank, and, and feel like they are primed to be uh, a big seller? I mean, there, there are certainly the teams uh, at the bottom of the standings uh, that we expected to see there, and then there seems to be a couple of teams that they have some assets. They probably thought they were going to be a little bit better than they are this year uh, that seem to have some interesting pieces that they could move if – they make a decision that I guess the, the same sort of decision that the Canucks are trying to make. Okay. So I'll throw a couple of teams at you and you tell me who you want to talk about. We'll go Columbus, New okay. Jersey, uh, Seattle and Chicago. Let's go with Seattle first. Actually. That's interesting. Okay. So the big thing about Seattle is they, they it, how spicy do they want to make this deadline mm-hmm. like they could make it really interesting if they say you know what we've gone through this process this season where we've evaluated our team and you know we're determining who our drivers of play are and he's had a really good season but 
Jared McCann, you know, when we're looking five years down the line, what is Jared McCann going to be for our team? What is, you know, go, there's a whole crop of players that you're like, that's the key for the Seattle Kraken is who is here for the long term and who isn't. And, you know, Junis Donskoy is another example. He's been a square peg in a round hole this year in Seattle has been just about as bad a fit as you could have for whatever reason. Sometimes these things just don't work here is last four seasons of goals, 14, 14, 16, and then 17 in a 51 game season last year. He has one goal in 53 games. It just hasn't worked. <laughs> He's got term on his contract one more year at 3.9. Like I'd be shocked if they're not moving him. So they've got questions, not just on the Mark Giordano's. That's an easy one. He's going. It's cut and dry, plain and simple. They have to reshape their goaltending. They could be a really interesting team at the deadline if they're willing to say, hey, you know what? We're going to raise the flag on Jared McCann. They could get an absolute king's ransom for a guy like that when it comes to the deadline. And, you know, another team kind of there that you mentioned in the Anaheim Ducks are looking to do some stuff. What What's going to happen mm-hmm. with Lindholm? Is he, is, are they going to be able to sign him or is that going to get dicey here by the deadline? Well, it, look, if he's not signed, he's going. Like, Pat Verbeek has made that clear. Um, he's only been on the job a few weeks and they're not in any position sort of like the Canucks to hope and pray and say, well, you know what, it's, it's been an interesting season. Let's just do right by the team and, and try and get in and, and put all our eggs in this basket. They've been building to this spot for three years now, previously under Bob Murray, to abandon that forward thinking, that long-term, you know, three years, four years down the line approach in terms of really becoming a contender. You know, they can't afford to do it. The problem is with Hampus Lindholm and frankly for Josh Manson as well on their blue line, both pending UFAs, if you are unable to re-sign those guys and you, you have to trade them at the deadline, which Pat Verbeek has made clear will happen if they're not signed, where does that put them, how far back does that put them in their turnaround? I mean, number two defenseman in the NHL like a Lindholm They don't grow on trees. I know he doesn't have the offensive output to really warrant a Morgan Riley type payday that we've seen on the market, but it's still going to be a significant buy-in from, from the Anaheim ducks to pay him. What do the term and dollars look like? And, and then what do you do with Manson who a, a guy that teams were drooling over for a number of years that just, they he hasn't been the same since the concussions that he went through. He he talked to people around the Ducks organization. He just hasn't quite been that top level uh, defenseman. And so the thing is, they need those guys. So that's what they're staring down. Those talks are underway, um, and there's only a short period of time to figure them out before they have to just you know say you know what we got to move on. Similar, similar situation in San Jose with uh, Tomas Hurdle uh, coming up as a UFA, and it seems like the conversation out of San Jose is, uh, you know, if, if he's not going to, to sign, that 
they they really need to explore trading him. Is is that the sense with them as well? Because they they're obviously a team like Anaheim that's come off uh, a, a pretty long run of success. Uh, has some some commitments to uh, San Jose has even more commitments to, to veteran players and trying to figure out where which direction they're headed. And Hurdles having a, a really great season. I'm sure if he was available, that the teams would be absolutely pouncing on that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why he's been really high on the trade target board. Um, because of the season he's had, because of how skilled he is, because of uh, the compete level that he has, his will to win, all those things are important. It makes very little sense to me that the Sharks would re-sign and commit all that term to Hurdle. What are they doing? Like, this is now going to be their third season in lottery range. And they've done it with these guys in Carlson and Vlasic and Burns on the back end. If you're to bring Hurdle back and add and pile on more term to this team, that would be four guys essentially accounting for about 45% of your salary cap for mm-hmm. next season. They haven't won with these guys. What would make you think that they're going to be better if they stay? Like at some point, they have to draw a line in the sand and say, you know, Tomas Hurdle, you've been great for the San Jose Sharks. We love everything you've provided for us, but we need to recoup the assets help our team begin turning over to the next group. Unless they have some other different plan that we don't know about to try and move on from those contracts on their back end, I, what what hope, what, what are you looking at in their prospect cupboard? What are you looking at that's coming down the line that would lead you to believe that this team could be different next season. How much can you really shuffle the deck given what they have going on on their cap? Yeah, no doubt about it. And Frank, before I let you go, I do have to get a Flyers question in for you. I love asking you about the Flyers, and especially when it comes to Rasmus Ristolainen, because we know he, he's one of those eye tests versus analytics guys. Analytically, he has not been good. And here we are hearing reports from Friedman that the Flyers are looking to re-sign and keep um, Rasmus Ristolainen if possible. What does that say about right-side defensemen and big defensemen in general and how teams do value you and, and will pay a premium for those types of players. I don't know what it says about right shot defensemen that are big and the question you asked. I think what it says more to me is it feels like the Flyers are trying to save face. Like Ristolainen, if you watch the games, has struggled. Um, his hockey sense just doesn't appear to be there. And the Flyers gave up a first and a second round pick. By the way, the second round pick is in 2023, which is supposed to be a loaded draft. And Robert Haig on top of that, another guy who is a pending uh, UFA that you know some teams have potentially drawn interest in at, at a cheap cap hit that could fill in on, on the bottom pair for your team. But they're in a spot where they gave up so much to have a lost and disastrous season, what's what's the best play moving forward? Is it to re-sign a guy that might not be a good fit? Or is it to try and recoup 60 cents on the dollar on the trade market and get back something of what you lost? It's a really unenviable position to be in. And the Flyers swung big last year. Like, they really tried to remake their team 
I'd say other than the New York Islanders, there's been no bigger disappointment in the NHL this year. Mm-hmm. I think almost everyone universally picked the Islanders to win the Metro. The Flyers are not far behind in terms of the hope that they went into this season with. Injuries have been a big part of it, but I think when you also look at some of the transactions that were made, Ryan Ellis and the number of games, he's missed 20 games each of the last two seasons. Mm-hmm. Like This is a guy whose body has not cooperated for a long time. They made a they rolled the dice, made a really big bet for a guy that has four or five more seasons left on his contract. Um, these are really Chuck Fletcher finds himself in a really tough position in Philadelphia and it begins you know, right at this moment with Rasmus Ristolainen. and the Claude Giroux one is, is a really kind of it's an easy situation. You you play it as delicately as you can. Um, your goal now is just to extract as much value from that transaction as possible, given the parameters that you're able to deal with, because Claude Giroux has a full no move and can essentially direct exactly where he goes. Yeah, it is really interesting to see what they do because, I mean, logically, just cut your losses. It's not better to throw good money after bad, but, you know, when it comes to pride and when it comes to saving face, organizations make those decisions, right, Frank? So it's not outside the realm of possibility. By the way, I, I want to just to bring it back to Vancouver. I think that is one of the most admirable traits of Jim Rutherford and, and his tenure, not just in Pittsburgh, but going back to Carolina. He made so many moves, and when something popped up, you know, a move that he made, he didn't, and it didn't fit, he just cut ties. Mm-hmm. He said, you know what, we're moving on. We're going to go in another direction. Why sit sit here and try and save face and pretend that it, it's working when everyone see, can see that it isn't. And so, you know, there's a, a long list of players that Jim Rutherford made a, a significant attempt on and uh, it didn't work out. And he just said, you know what, we're going in another direction. And I, I think that, I think that's the mark of a really, really good manager that can see that and evaluate himself and is not afraid to also then pick up and try again um, which isn't easy. Yeah, that's well said. Great insight as always. Frank Valley. make sure to check him out on Daily Faceoff. Always a fr- pleasure, Frank, and uh, who knows, maybe next week we talk about some trade action. Yeah, hopefully. We'll see. Uh, it'll be two weeks away then on Monday, so yeah. let's get there. You got it. Uh, thanks, Frank. Have a good night, guys. You thanks, too. Uh, that is Frank Valley. Always great uh, catching up with him, and you know, interesting thoughts are at the end about uh, Rutherford, and that's something that, Izzy, you can talk about any sport it's not worth doubling down on a bad mistake if, if, if something's a mistake it's no shame in moving on and trying something different the worst thing you can do is double down on a mistake totally and that's uh as frank said part of rutherford's reputation we know he likes to make moves and likes yeah. to make trades and we know that he's he's pretty quick on the trigger when he thinks that that something's wrong and yeah. that something's off and he's not gonna it's not gonna waste his time which uh look i i think in the world of pro sports today there are not maybe you know when you've got the Stanley Cup backings that you you feel more comfortable doing that than maybe some other GMs. Yeah. But he's got it and he's done it. We'll break down some of the stuff he said about the Canucks trade wise and what they may or may not do by the deadline. We'll we'll dig into that coming up in an open segment at five thirty. But coming up next, we are checking in with Harmon Dial of the Athletic. We'll check in on what's happening in the Big Apple. He's been in New York for a week. A young man in New York covering hockey. I wonder what he's getting up to. So we'll check in with Harmon Dial and see what he's been up to. In the Big Apple, it is Canuck Central and the home of your Canucks, Sportsnet 650.